On today's show, we had some very uh, interesting guests, some very important guests with some uh, fascinating insights. First, when talking about uh, radicalization and what makes people in uh, cushy Western countries want to join ISIS and uh, try and attack people like those who are attending uh, restaurants and concerts in Paris, uh, we talked to Mubin Sheikh, uh, who is the author of a book called Undercover Jihadi, who himself was radicalized and then found his way out and became instrumental in foiling the Toronto 18 terror plot. Then we talked to a young lady who has the same affliction uh, condition that um, Charlie Sheen has, undetectable HIV. Here we go. Roger Kincaid and Rob Breckenridge. But there's one story that's starting to develop in Canada, and it really started to develop on Saturday evening. Can't say for sure that it was in response to the attacks in Paris, but a mosque in Peterborough was torched. And the community has rallied around the Muslim community in Peterborough to say, you know, we're sorry, this should never have happened. Various different faith groups understand that uh, attacks like this in a free country like Canada, a peace-loving country like Canada, are completely unacceptable. In Toronto, we have another story now of a woman, a Muslim woman, who was attacked by two men. Uh, the suspects are described as white guys around age 30 uh, who attacked a woman who was picking up her kids at school. I tweeted this morning that not all Muslims are terrorists, particularly the ones who are picking up their kids at public school. It seems as though that there are still some people in Canada who are unclear about how we should be accepting neighbors to prevent certain problems that we're afraid of. You know, I struggle to understand this. What we, we what these people think they're accomplishing or, or this kind of a response. I mean, clearly, um, you know, Muslims are, are, are first in the line of fire when it comes to ISIS. ISIS has racked up a tremendous death toll, and the vast majority of those people have been Muslims. Uh, Muslims fear ISIS. Muslims are opposed to ISIS. Uh, now, that being said, I mean, ISIS claims to represent Islam. ISIS claims to be acting Islamically. They claim to be acting uh, in an Islamic way in their own view in, in accordance with the Quran. And, uh, and they speak in those terms. The statement they released claiming credit for the Paris attacks, uh, spoke at great length about the Quran and about crusaders and pagans, etc. They speak in that language. And so I think we can distinguish the two. I think we can understand what ISIS claims to represent and the way in which they appeal to potential recruits roots uh, and separate that from the broader population uh so I, I think we can we can do both we can understand that and appreciate that um but it does seem to me that this this kind of response does play into the, the hands of of isis and, and extremist groups to to have marginalized uh angry young people who feel as though they have nowhere else to turn and who feel that countries like canada have turned on them rejected them are against islam are enemies of islam etc i don't know that we need to make isis's uh, recruiting efforts any any easier certainly it's problematic at, at the level they're at okay so here's here's a microcosm of the problem that i'm talking about and you just alluded to it talked about isis recruitment strategy what's easier to do if you're ISIS and you're trying to radicalize somebody in Canada, who do you got a better chance of radicalizing? Some young Muslim kid who goes to the movies with his friends, then he goes home on the bus, and then he has dinner with his family, and he gets up and he goes to school the next day? Or are they going to have an easier time radicalizing some kid whose mom got beat up this one time by two white dudes because she's Muslim? Do you get it? 
Well, look, I mean, at the same time, though, was, was Farah Sheerden, did, did he experience anything like that? What about the, the individuals who have converted and become radicalized? I mean, we shouldn't oversimplify it, but, but certainly we don't want to, to create that, that disconnect uh, and lead someone on, on that path potentially. But there are a lot of reasons why people go down that path. A moving shake has been on that path before, and he joins us now. You've uh, read his book, uh, Undercover Jihadi Movie, and welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you very much for having me. So this is uh, a conversation, I think, that that is deeply personal for you in, in many respects because of uh, of the journey that you took. Um, why don't you take us back to the beginning and, and recount the story of, of you know what made you disenchanted, if you will. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the pathway to radicalization is highly individualized. Uh, you know, it depends on uh, the personal circumstances of an individual. So, you know, for me, as I, I was born and raised here, of course, uh, I went to uh, a Quran school in the evening, and I went to public school by daytime. And in the evening, it was a very rigid, closed environment where, you know, you, you learn how to recite the Quran, but you don't understand what it's saying. Um, you know, it's like an Indo-Pakistani madrasa system and a very closed, uh, rigid environment. Um, in fact, I would say it's your first introduction to religion and violence because if you didn't recite correctly, you were smacked around. I juxtapose that with, you know, public school, caring, nurturing environment, uh, gender mixing, uh, diverse cultural experiences. And so this created an identity crisis for me, which would manifest later on in my life. And uh, really, it was a sense of identity and belonging uh, that put me on the path of, uh, you know, wanting to, quote-unquote, get religious. And uh, that took me to India and Pakistan. And, of course, while I was in Pakistan, I had a chance encounter with the Taliban. And they were the ones who put me on the path of seeing the world through this prism of us versus them, of, you know, the non-Muslim, non-believing enemy that was occupying Muslim lands. And that was the narrative that I got sucked into uh, in the mid-90s. What's different about ISIS today uh, compared to groups like the Taliban and, and other groups that were around in the 90s? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, from 95 to 2001, um, I operated in this extremist milieu. And in 1998 is when uh, bin Laden came out with his fatwa against the world, basically. And then, of course, we saw, you know, that manifest in 9-11. In the 90s, of course, we didn't have cell phones. You know, there was really no social networking as it is today. If we wanted to watch jihadi videos, you had to, you know, you had to get a a VHS. Oh, my God, remember those? Um, You know, now you can, you know, you can get that stuff on your phone. Um, So the rapid rate at which grievances can be shared um, is very, very different today than it was, you know, yesterday. I think that's just one aspect of it. It's, It's... it's projecting those narratives of grievances over and over and over um, and watching videos with, you know, very, very high levels of, of editing, of production value. Um, and those things play on your emotions. So when you're, if you imagine you're, when you're listening to a song, you know, you know what a sad song sounds like. You know, the melodies will make you feel particular feelings. Now, if you're listening to a particular melody, let's say that's sad, that's your ears. Now, with your eyes, you're watching videos in which, you know, your community members are being, you know, uh, oppressed, killed, mutilated. Then that makes, it creates a feeling inside you that, you know what, I got to do something about this. And as these young people look to see, well, how can I do something about this, quote unquote, you have 
in that marketplace of ideas, extremists who are saying, this is what you need to do about it. You need to fight back. But who did you want to fight back against? Like, who is your perception of your enemy at that point in time? Is it the people that you're seeing in the video, or is it people that you remember uh, that you didn't have, you know, an association with, uh, you know, a, a positive association with at home? Yeah, you know, uh, just so two things here. You you actually, you guys uh, raised an important point about, you know, the kid who's more likely to be radicalized, right? I mean, I wasn't bullied. I wasn't picked on. Uh, I wasn't beat up. Nobody, you know, I didn't have those experiences, the negative experiences of victimization. For me, it was wholly based on, on ideology and identity. Uh, but on the flip side, for me, uh, you know, the enemy was the West. Uh, the West was you know, the, the occupying powers who were either supporting dictatorships or, or conducting interventions in the Muslim world that were, you know, killing, I mean, a whole heck of a lot more than, you know, 100-plus people that were killed in Paris. And this is the narrative now that a lot of, you know, young people are saying. is like, okay, well, I'm supposed to feel sorry for the Paris victims, but, you know, meanwhile, Muslims have been bombed and killed, like, not just by the West, but by ISIS as well. You know, over 100,000 have been killed by ISIS alone, in the past two years. So for me, the West was the enemy in that regard. And of course, uh, when 9-11 happened, that's actually the, the first thing that made me reconsider my commitment to the cause. And I then moved to Syria. I lived in Syria for two years, studying Arabic and Islamic studies. And in fact, came to realize, oh, wait a second, maybe, maybe the West isn't such a bad place after all, for, uh, particularly for rights uh, of Muslims. What about other Muslims? Did, 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 did you fall into the belief that Shia, for example, were, were apostates, and, and other Muslims who, who did not oh, meet yeah. that ideology, that they were apostates? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, you know, the, you develop this arrogance, you know, that I am, I am selected, I am chosen, I am better than you, right? So even in the religious angle of it, this is pride, right? Um, and... I looked down on other Muslims, people who didn't have, let's say, a full beard like I had, or I wore the full robes, you know, right down to my, my ankles. Mm -hmm. And I would look down on other Muslims as uh, not just apostates, but not not good enough, you know, not Muslim enough. Wow. Um, talk, talk to me a little bit, though, about, you know, when you start to liberate yourself from this because you as i recall in a previous discussion you seem to indicate that the more you studied the quran the more you saw the truth yeah i mean the you know uh, for example mark sageman mark sageman is a uh, ex-cia i mean case officer he, he ran the insurgency in afghanistan for the last uh, three years he's a qualified flight surgeon uh, he's written a lot of a uh, lot of stuff on on radicalization did a lot of interviews with people, data sets, uh, and what he concluded was, to the vast majority of them, they don't know the religion. They have a very uh, superficial experience with the religion. And it's usually foreign policy grievances or moral outrage, uh, as he calls it, that drive them uh, to become what they become. Um, you know, we, we've heard stories of uh, individuals going over, like two guys from the UK, you know, they went to join ISIS, and what books did they have on them? Uh, Islam for Dummies. Right. <laughs> so, so really, truly, the they have a very superficial understanding of the religion, and it was only because for me, I went with those superficial understandings. Like, I'll give you a perfect example. You know, there's a very oft-quoted verse called uh, from chapter nine, verse five of the Quran, and uh, it says, you know, uh, well, the way that it was pitched to me was, uh, you know, kill the unbelievers wherever you find them. 
Okay. Now, when I so that was my justification for validating when a bombing took place in Russia or Tanzania in an American embassy. But then when I got to Syria and I sat with a religious scholar who, you know, who knew the Arabic, I was now learning Arabic, you know, the rules of interpretation of the Quran. And he said to me very simply, he goes, do you usually begin reading chapters from the fifth verse? <laughs> so that made me think, yeah, wait a second. He's, he, what he's doing is he's, he's informing me on context. So when I go to chapter 9, verse 1, it's telling you this is referring to a very specific group of people who were warring with the early Muslim community. And, you know, looking at verse 5, the verse directly before it says, this does not apply to those people who are not fighting you. So, so he showed me how I had taken things completely out of context, cherry-picked portions of verses, and then constructed this elaborate worldview uh, on its basis. So now what I've been doing is, you know, since 2012, I was, I've been on Twitter, I was engaging with a lot of these foreign fighters uh, online in real time, many of whom are now dead, of course. Uh, and, and I would counter their messaging. Uh, I had Al-Qaeda guys following me on Twitter and debating me in direct messages. And, and I knew their arguments because I used to subscribe to them. So when I would always give them the counter message that I was learned, I was taught, they, they had nothing to say. Because if I can show you that the verse is saying this only applies to very specific groups of people who are, like, fighting you, then this is about self-defense. This is not about wanton killing of just anyone who's not like you. You know, unfortunately, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the, the leader of ISIS, doesn't seem too interested in, in having those kinds of debates. But what do we make of someone like that who clearly knows religion, has a Ph.D. In, in Islamic studies, has chosen his name very deliberately, uh, but yet represents this, this kind of twisted ideology? That's a very good point. Um, you know, so the really what we're looking at with ISIS is it is, it is the amalgamation of the ex-Saddam regime and al-Qaeda. So in 2003, of course, you know, when the Americans went in, and that's really just the first trigger, uh, they kicked out the Saddam regime. They laid off, basically, military intelligence people, police, uh, you know, their, their dreaded mukhabarat, you know, the security intelligence people. They torture everyone, of course. And then the Americans and Brits were housing them all in the same camp, Camp Bucca, B-U-C-C-A, uh, both al-Qaeda guys and ex-regime guys. So the ex-regime guys said, you know what, we're going to team up with you guys, and we're going to come back into power. That's basically what we want. And so they just put the cover of religion on top of that to justify the power grab. So, you know, the, I mean, the, he, he, that's true, he can have his Ph.D., and he can give himself all these lofty titles, but uh, the fact remains uh, there are some things that you just cannot do in, in the religion. It's, it's very clear. Like the first caliph, whose name was Abu Bakr, of course, this is why this guy names himself after him, because mm-hmm. he considers himself, of course, the first caliph of this reestablished caliphate. The first caliph, real caliph, said uh, in his instructions to the military, don't kill women, don't kill children, don't kill old people. When you come upon those people who have devoted their lives into in monasteries, leave them alone. Now, juxtapose that with what Baghdadi is doing, uh, attacking churches, kidnapping priests, yeah. <laughs> uh, kidnapping priests. Sorry. Um, so juxtapose that, and you see that what he's doing is very different than what Islam is claiming. 
Uh, Mubin, when you, you look at the experience in, in Canada, and uh, obviously you're quite familiar with, with the situation here, uh, versus what we see in, in Europe, what, what are the major differences? Why do we see so much strife and, and the, a bigger problem concerning radicalization in Europe? Yeah, the, the context in Europe is, is very different uh, from the context in Canada, and this is important for us to, to keep in mind when we're uh, you know processing this whole Syria refugee issue. Um, you know, number one, we don't have the geographic proximity to those those hotspots like like Turkey, uh, Syria, uh, that we do over here. So people get on boats, literally, uh, from Syria, Turkey, and they you know they go to the closest place, uh, or and, and not just uh, Syria, but also Libya. Uh, those are other places where people are fleeing from because ISIS is also in Libya, and they're showing up you know on the uh, islands of, of Greece. Um, I was in Crete actually not too long ago. Uh, you know, I saw a big banner that was unfurled that said "Refugees Welcome," um, or, or those migrants who are who are showing up in Italy. Uh, we don't have people showing up on boats. That actually happened in Canada. It happened with the Jews. Actually, uh, we we turned away Jews for fear that there might have been Nazi spies among them, and they were turned back. And we know what happened. They were killed. Uh, or Sikhs, Sikhs in you know the early 1900s when the Sikhs came, um, they were turned back. Um, and what's in an amazing streak of irony, the of course the the new defense minister uh, Harjit Sajjan, um, himself a Sikh, who became the commanding officer of that very same regiment that turned away Sikhs in 1914. So um, our experience here is one of of inclusion, of tolerance, multiculturalism. Um, we don't have the high, high levels of, of marginalization and discrimination um, that Muslims in Europe are facing, in particular in France. You know, France has a very bloody colonial history in Algeria. Um, you know, if, uh, in fact, uh, you know, there's, you can see these pictures online that have circulated of, of French soldiers holding up the severed heads of Algerians. You know, so when we look at ISIS today, I mean, those people, I mean, you know, Muslims uh, who are still reminiscing about what happened and not too long ago. I mean, people don't forget these things after 70 years. These are stories that narratives, grievance narratives that are recycled over and over. So we don't have that here. We don't have that colonial history. We don't have that, you know, discrimination at that level that they have over there. And uh, Muslims in North America generally are much more upwardly mobile than Muslims in, in Europe. When you were doing the work with the Toronto 18 plot, though, did, did you notice some of that marginalization uh, that, that could have led to radicalization amongst those amongst that group, or is that too simple? Well, you know, there um, again, everyone has an individual experience, um, and I did hear of stories of people saying that they were, you know, discriminated. So, for example, um, Zakaria Amara, uh, you know, major like main ringleader of the Toronto 18 plots. Uh, he said, he said that after 9-11, um, you know, they started calling me Osama, right? Now, of course, I mean, not everyone who's called a, a slur is going to become a terrorist, but I'm saying those are some of the ingredients that when you put it together and the right environment in which that it can incubate and, and basically bake, uh, then you have a very predictable response of, you know, dysfunction, maybe even violence or violent extremism. It may not always manifest in terrorism. It can manifest even in low-level street crimes. So you have, you know, let's say it's Somali gangs, right? Um, they may not be inculcated in ideology, but but they feel marginalized. Um, you know, the 
you know, you know, it was almost, uh, you know, in the beginning, the, the Somalis, they, they were acting like uh, the Somali gangs. You know, the African blacks were saying, well, you guys aren't real Africans. You're not real blacks. All right? The Jamaicans were saying, you're not real blacks. And so they had to find their own identity. And a lot of the criminality that's associated in, in that community uh, does stem from, you know, disenfranchisement, lack of opportunities, and sense of uh, belonging, like who am I supposed to be? So for some people, uh, it, it was there. It was a, you know, a, a factor. For others, it wasn't. For others, in fact, and I'm going to kind of flip it, it's where uh, people create the conditions where you ghettoize yourself. So you you make yourself a victim, right? You you remain apart from the society. You dress in ways that are telling the rest of the society, "Look, I'm not I'm not with you," right? Yeah, of course. I mean, our mindset in this society is, look, I don't care what you wear, right? I mean, don't break the law. I mean, have a basic loyalty to our country, and that's that's okay. And you can, I don't care what you wear on your face or wherever. But for others, you're creating this condition. So me, this is what I did. When I went to India and Pakistan and I came back and now I have a beard and a robe and I look like, you know, I'm from the 900s, Guess what? People started looking at me weird. Right. People started saying things to me. Uh, I would, they said, you know, go back to your country. You know, what the hell? What's with the pajamas? You know, these these sorts of uh, insults. And I wasn't used to that. And I mean, you know, I took offense to that because obviously I'm born and raised here. I have perfect English, and it surprised a lot of people when they did try to challenge me. But the point I'm trying to make is those feelings of isolation and alienation can be can come from outside and it can also be self-imposed right well being great insight as always uh, we got to leave it there thanks so much for making some time for us here today always thank you very I much appreciate it uh mugen sure. sheikh uh counterterrorism radicalization uh, expert author uh, of the book undercover jihadi it's interesting when you look at the suspects in the toronto 18 the plotters um, I don't think any of them were refugees, actually. But you have people who had immigrated to Canada, immigrated as children, people who were the children of immigrants. Uh, and even had, for example, one was Canadian born and raised, was a Canadian soldier, converted to Islam and became radicalized to the point where he, he joined this plot as well. So as as Mubin says, it's, it's an individual experience. It happens for many different reasons. And uh, there, there's no one simple answer to it. All right, last half hour of the show here. Uh, Rob, you might remember, uh, I said a long time ago, hey, Rob, next time we hear from Charlie Sheen, I bet it won't be a good thing. I don't know. I think I was on vacation when you said that. Uh, I don't did, remember that. Who did I tell? Because I have to collect a bet. Wasn't you? Okay, that's fine. Well, I like to go on vacation from time to time. <laughs> right? Don't hold that against me. Okay. I'm trying to be less, I'm trying to be more subtle about it. Okay. The whole vacation thing you're talking about. Oh, that's fine. Here they come. Um, nine seven four eight two five five. By the way, if uh, you're just looking for the phone number to call in, congratulations to somebody. We'll get the winner's name in just a second. Uh, Charlie Sheen was on television today uh, to speak out about um, his diagnosis. He is uh, HIV positive. I'm here to to admit that I am in fact uh, HIV positive. Um, and I, um, I, 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 I have to put a, a, a stop to this, this, this onslaught, um, this, this barrage of, of, uh, of, of attacks and of, 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 of subtruths and, um, and, and very, um, very harmful and, 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 and mercurial stories that, 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 that are about the, 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 the threatening the health of, of so many others, which is, which is, couldn't be farther from the truth. I wanna... Okay, so that's uh, Charlie Sheen talking to Matt Lauer. 
and saying that there's a barrage of subtruths, of mercurial stories that threaten the health of others. He has, he is HIV positive. It has been for some time. It was diagnosed four years ago, hmm. he says. Uh, now we talked about how he'd been blackmailed over that knowledge, uh, talked about his own depression and in dealing with that. Uh, but the question was posed on whether or not he's could have transmitted HIV to anybody else and says uh, it's impossible, he says. Because he's, he says the form of HIV that he has is undetectable. It's undetectable HIV. And that's not Charlie Sheen, the wordsmith, using uh, the term. That's a that's a clinical type. That's a clinical definition of HIV. Well, what does right. it mean? Yeah. Which seems counterintuitive, because mm-hmm. if you have a disease, the way we know you have a disease is we detect it. We detect that you have something, and that's how we're able to tell you that you have something. So for him to say he has undetectable HIV, again, it, it seems like an oxymoron, because if it's undetectable, maybe it's not really there. So what does it tell us about HIV and what we know about HIV and the great strides we've made in in treating HIV, helping people manage and and live with HIV? And how great have the strides been, right? I mean, HIV was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but don't uh, correct me if I sound politically incorrect here. Uh, It was once called the gay plague, and now it's something that people uh, can live very long and fruitful lives with. And in fact, the risk of transmission of, of, of HIV is significantly reduced depending on uh, treatments that are pursued. Mm-hmm. So we have come a very, very long way with the human immunodeficiency virus. Let's bring Ashley Rose Murphy into our conversation. Uh, Ashley uh, has uh, had HIV since birth. Welcome to the program, Ashley. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks very much for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So we are uh, hoping you can help us to better understand the strides that have been made uh, in, in in combating HIV and, and what exactly this term undetectable HIV means. Well, seeing as like we have gone gotten really far in the fight towards HIV AIDS and um, what he was trying to say about undetectable is that when someone's virus is undetectable, that means that their viral load is under 50, meaning that their virus is so low that they have almost a 0% chance of transmitting the the disease onto someone else. But they have to be taking their medicine in order for it to be stabilized. And the the, the primary uh, drug that does that, as I understand, is, is Truvada. Is that right? Um, there could be, there, there's many, there's AZT, there, there's many okay, different they essentially antiretrovirals do this, that, right. that help to stabilize your condition. And they essentially do the same thing, though? Yes, they help to treat and to prevent you from getting sick. Okay. You know, Ashley, we, we hear about um, medical advancements all the time. We hear about new treatments, wonder therapies, all sorts of stuff like that. How current, how recent a discovery are these antiretrovirals? that you're talking about, or, or if we had them for a long time? Um, well, I've been on antiretroviral since I was a little baby, so they've been around for a long time. They've essentially been the key to my health and for me staying alive and healthy. But how, how much have they uh, evolved or progressed in that time? Uh, you're not taking the same drugs today that you were when you were a baby 17 years ago, are you? Oh, no. There's, they're, they're always coming out with different medications, and of course, like during my life, I've had medications that have worked, but then they, my body has just stopped responding to the medicine, and so I have to start on on a new medicine. 
And once you have one medicine and it stops working for you, you can't take that anymore because it won't work. So it's just a cycle, and then there's just a whole line of pills and medications that you have to take that will help you. Are, are these expensive drugs? They are very expensive, yes. And so are we doing enough to make sure that there there's equal access to those drugs? Sorry? Are we doing enough to make sure there's equal access, that, that a Canadian who's diagnosed as HIV positive has the same opportunity to, to benefit from these drugs, regardless of, of circumstances? Well, for me, like there's the there's the um, drug plans that you can be covered under, and because I'm only 17, that gets paid for. Right. Ah, that's interesting. Do you do you run into some difficulty when you become an adult? Um, it is going to. I'm going to have to be starting to pay for it myself, and it and my parents as well. They're going to be helping me, but it, it is a lot. Mm-hmm. Wow. Can you can you give us an idea of how much it is? I'm guessing around, I'm not too sure, I think it's around 4000 a month. Holy smoke. Wow. Wow. Um, because that's one of the, the that's one of the, uh, the you know, the, the conversations around Charlie Sheen's announcement today. You know, the, the, we, we know notorious, um, famous people like Magic Johnson, now Charlie Sheen. These are people that uh, are living with HIV and have been living very, you know, uh, high-quality lives with HIV. But many people uh, say it's because they can afford to, that, uh, that access to medicine uh, for those uh, with HIV isn't necessarily uh, affordable for everybody. So I think you're kind of illustrating that for us. But you're also telling us that, uh, that this term undetectable HIV that, uh, that we're using in the context of, of Charlie Sheen's announcement today, uh, is, it's not a type of HIV or it's not a strain of the virus. It's, it's merely an indication of how well one has medicated and managed the condition. Well, Undetectable, it still means that you have the virus of HIV. It's, it's not going away. But it's so low that the chances of contracting, to give it, giving it to somebody else is very slim. It's almost 0% chance. And especially in when in sexual activities, if you're using a condom, it's almost 0% chance. If you're undetectable and you're taking your medicine. Right. But what about in your situation if you wanted to have a baby? Uh, is On it, my is... situation, um, I'm also undetectable as well. Right. So, meaning my viral load's under 50, but also they've come with new different terms, and it's there's a lot of terms, and sometimes it's hard to understand. But for me, I ha- I'm target not detected. So basically, meaning that when the doctors test my blood, they don't find any of the HIV virus. Not meaning that I don't have HIV; I still have it, but it's so small and so minuscule that it's hiding in my lymph nodes and other parts of my body, but I still have it. Right. But where we talk about transmitting it to a sexual partner, does, does the same uh, rule apply to transmitting it to your offspring? Um, well, the same thing. You have to take the precautions. Right. Um, for I don't really know, per se, what you have to do when you're pregnant because I'm obviously 17 and I haven't gone to that stage yet. Right. But definitely when that time comes, you have to really consult your doctors and take the medicine that is needed in order to not transmit it to your child. All right. What, what are there, I mean, are there side effects from the medication? Are there still effects from the virus? Or is otherwise your, your day-to-day life normal? Well, my day-to-day life is normal. But over the years, I've had several different pills, and they all do. They all have different side effects to me. So um, the medicine that I'm on right now, it's only one pill a day. Mm-hmm. But I've been, re- I've had some, I guess, backlash to it. I, my hair's been thinning and it's kind of been falling out. 
it's good that I have thick hair already. And um, also being a teenager, I have acne, but the medicine has caused me to break out even more. And I've also, over the summer, been diagnosed with osteoporosis because the type of medicine that I was on really thins your bones out. What about the uh, the stigma that you've experienced around around HIV? Uh, are, it seems that you know more about it because you have it, but it's not necessarily an education that uh, people who are not diagnosed HIV positive are, are willing to go out and get. So are the stigmas still there? Oh, the stigma is definitely there. And it'll, a lot of it comes from um, not educating yourself. And uh, personally for me, growing up, I've been almost uninvited to sleepover parties when I was seven years old. And just a couple of years ago, one of my friend's parents told them to give me plastic plates, cups, and utensils when I visited. It's kind of stuff like that. Right. But I know um, youth with HIV that are too afraid to speak out because they're afraid of the stigma. And I've had friends who have had to sell their houses and move schools due to the HIV discrimination in their community. Oh. Do you think having someone like Charlie Sheen go public with this, do, do you think that helps with awareness, helps end the stigma? Or do you think that Charlie Sheen is someone who has you know, so much of his own personal baggage that, that, you know, that it could, be, could have a negative effect? Well, when I first found out, I found that it was very admirable of him because it's from personal experiences. It's not the easiest thing to disclose your status. And this day and age, a lot of people think that HIV doesn't exist anymore and that so they won't catch it and so they won't take the precautions in order to not contract the virus. And so I find him being in the position that he is, being such a big star, I just hope that he uses his fame for good and to really put the message out there and say, I'm HIV positive and we need your help so we can find a cure and ultimately end it. How far away from a vaccine do you think we are, if at least, uh, if not a cure? Um, to be honest, I'm not quite sure, but I know that there's been a lot of medical advancements in the past 15 years or so. And I know that for organizations like UNAIDS, their goal is for 2030 to be the year that AIDS is completely cured, that it's gone. Right. Yeah, it's it's it kind of it's heartbreaking to hear the the stigma story because I mean your your story is that you found out at a very young age that that you'd been HIV positive since birth, and you disclosed it to your friends because, well, you you knew you hadn't done anything wrong, right? Yeah, my I, I'm adopted, and my my parents sat me down on the couch when I was seven, and I already knew that I had a virus, but I didn't know what it was called. And so they kind of told me that the reason that I went to all these medical appointments and the reason that I took all this medication is because I have a virus called HIV. And the doctors and my parents advised me not to tell anybody because they were afraid that I would be bullied and that people would be mean to me. But I didn't, I just simply asked, why do I have to keep it a secret? I didn't do anything wrong. Okay. And so I just basically started, I started telling everybody and I found that the kids didn't have a problem with it meaning simply because they didn't know what it was. They just saw me as their friend, Ashley, who they like to talk to and hang out with. But their parents had a different approach to it, and they thought that possibly by hanging out with their kids that they would contract it, but that was just the ignorance and the not being educated part of it. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> it's really hard to get HIV um, now, like, 
I mean, there's there's obvious ways that you can go about contracting it, but I think that for most people living a regular life, it's really quite uh, difficult to 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 contract. I don't know. Maybe maybe I don't know what I'm saying right now, but I I just it's it's really sad to me that you you would have to go through an experience like that where grown-ups were less aware of the disease uh, of the virus than a seven-year-old was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've had my battles, but I really try to keep going. And I the reason why I speak out is to be the voice for those who are too afraid because it's such a taboo subject and not a lot of people have HIV want to talk about it. And so I find that even though I've had some discrimination and stigmatization towards me, I know that I have the support of my friends and family and that really keeps me going and makes me know that I can share my story and hope to help other people. Yeah. Well, Ashley, you're, you're certainly uh, to be commended for you know speaking out on this, and uh, we certainly wish you all the best in 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 your own uh, issues with this and struggles with this. But obviously, as you say, that there there is hope, and and that's that's good to know. Yeah, there's de- there's definitely hope, and people like me and people like Charlie Sheen, we can live full lives even with our our HIV status. Yeah, we, we're just normal people. Indeed, Ashley, thanks again. All the best. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right. There you go. Someone texted to say what a remarkable young woman, clearly. Yeah, no kidding. Ashley Rose Murphy. You know, there's uh, uh, it, it's changed so remarkably in our lifetimes, Rob. Um, uh, HIV was a death sentence uh, some decades ago. Now people live uh, remarkable lives uh, well into well beyond the average life expectancy, uh, you know, well into their 70s. And, and consider that, right? Someone diagnosed with HIV at age 20 left untreated. Uh, the average uh, is 12 years. Uh, but under treatment, the average is uh, closer to 60. That's remarkable. Well, you know, I mean, you know, you look at someone like Magic Johnson as an example, right? And, um, you know, it's remarkable that, that uh, he's still as, as active and, and as apparently as, as healthy as he is. I mean, there, there is the, the concern, though, that, you know, people like Charlie Sheen, you know, they've got the resources that they can deal with this. Whatever's out there, whatever's available, they, they can have it. They can afford it. They can have access to it. That's not the reality for everyone. As Ashley said, these drugs are, are insanely expensive drugs that not everybody can afford, obviously.